This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. All right, so here's the deal. Last week and the week before, we looked at the same text and the same three points, because two weeks ago I got through one of the three points, and last week I got through the last two points. It's a very good chance we'll do that again today. Um, so my goal is to um, not deflate so much air out of the balloon that no one enjoys communion and that we get there and uh, get out of here and enjoy this day. Um, you would say, why the long text? Usually on communion weeks, I pick a much shorter text. And the reason I pick this long text is because it all goes together. Um, if you pick up in verse 20, Jesus' family, more specifically his mother and his brothers, are coming after him to seize him or to arrest him or to grab hold of him. We'll look more about that in a minute. And then it says they, they've left Nazareth and they're heading towards Capernaum where Jesus is now. And Mark does this thing, this technique that theologians, this is a great word. You're, you're going to really want to write this one down because this might be one of the big words in heaven that gets you in. But they call it sandwiching. <laughs> Profound. It means something in Latin, I'm sure. And um, Mark has this peculiar way of tying two stories together in order to let us know that they're related to one another and to give us a third point that we could not have possibly had without the two being tied together. And so his mom and his brothers are coming to seize him, and he just says, and then the scribes come down from Jerusalem. And then Jesus is going to talk to the scribes for a while, and they're his primary enemy in the Gospel of Mark. And then all of a sudden, it's going to go back, and he's going to catch back up, starting in 31 through 35, what's going on with his family. Okay, so I couldn't figure out how to split it out any other way. But this text um, is also, I, I bring it to you in, in its fullness and, and as, as, as one piece because there is something that theologians now for years have called the trilemma and that philosophers and thinkers have called the trilemma. And I want to unpack that for you. And this text is one of the best biblical texts to capture what the trilemma is. Okay, But once you let yourself go through those 15 verses, there's so much other stuff. Like one of the scariest verses in all of Scripture is in this text. I mean, my guess is if I were to say to you, what do you remember of what Michelle read to you from the sermon text? A lot of us would be like, what in the world is the thing you can't be forgiven for? And what is that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit stuff? So we're going to try and unpack that in the second point, um, at least to the extent that we can call ourselves into repentance and faith as, um, as those who know and trust Jesus. And then last but not least, we're going to talk about the binding of the strong man, which is one of the coolest verses in all of Scripture from my perspective. So uh, with that being said, what is the trilemma? So far, so far in Mark's gospel, listen to some of the things that Jesus has been saying about himself. First, um, in both of the occasions I'm going to reference here, he calls himself the Son of Man in chapter 2, two times. The first time he says the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins on earth. The second time he says uh, the Son of Man is the Lord or creator or institutor of the Sabbath. First of all, Son of Man is a direct quote from Daniel 7. Jesus loves to call himself the Son of Man. And in Daniel chapter 7, there's this prophecy that says that God himself is going to come and he's going to, to bring his kingdom to earth, and he's going to have a dominion that will have no end, and he will wipe out evil, and he will establish goodness and justice and mercy and forgiveness and life. And so to those like the scribes and Pharisees who understand the Old Testament, particularly Daniel chapter 7, for him to say that he's the son of man, he is saying, I am the Lord himself. And not only that, in chapter 2, when he's talking to the paralytic, you remember, he says, the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Yet again, another claim that only God himself can say is true of himself. 
And then he says, after that, I've, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I thought of the Sabbath. I was there in creation on the seventh day when we decided to rest from a perfectly good creation. And so what Jesus has said now, we're, we're just now finishing chapter three today, and we haven't even gone through the rest of these chapters where he'll say more audacious and shocking things, but he is not letting us come up with any other thought about him as to what his self-designation and definition is, except for that he believes that he is God himself. What are you going to do with that? I mean, I, I used to work at um, a place called Moxon Bend in Chattanooga, Tennessee. It was a, it was a, uh, it was a home. It was an institution. It, it was a place. It was a farm. It was actually a, a quite lovely place. Um, it was there for those who had just really, really damaging and hurtful uh, mental disorders. And of the men who struggle with schizophrenia that I would interview and I would spend time with, um, I would say 90% of them thought that they too were God, that they were divine, that they were the Lord. And so, you know, when Jesus' family in verses 20 and 21, they're coming to get him, what do they say is true of Jesus? He's out of his mind. He's lost all touch with his senses. I mean, think about this. If, if, you were, if someone, you're at lunch and someone comes up and introduces themselves to you and they say, listen, I've existed from time past and I will exist into future eternity. And everything that you see here is dependent upon my word and my keeping it alive and having it go along and move along. And not only that, every sin that you have ever committed has been a sin primarily against me as the God of the universe. And I want you to know that I forgive you. And not only that, your eternal destiny is going to be based on whether or not you like me and want to hang out with me. We would be just like Jesus' parents, his mom and brothers. He's nuts. But then the Pharisees come along in verses uh, 20, uh, 22 and following, and they say, not only has he lost his mind, but he is actually under the control and the dominion and the power of Satan himself. And this is what theologians and philosophers have called for years. Most, most um, popularly, C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity talks about the trilemma. Listen, when someone comes and says that they're the Lord of the universe, you have three options. To tell them that they're crazy to believe that they're lying so that they might gain control of you for evil purposes or they're right. And this text is confronting us with that exact same reality. Either Jesus is exactly who he says he is, and if he's exactly who he says he is, which is the Lord of the universe, and if he has done exactly what he says he has done, which has come to do everything necessary to save a people unto himself who can do nothing to save themselves, then that has radical implications as to what's going to go on with the rest of our lives. If he's Lord, and if he did everything to save me, then that means he can ask me to do anything. And so... The trilemma is this idea that either Jesus is a lunatic, he's a liar, or he's the Lord. And so Jesus' family is convinced that he's lost his mind, and the scribes are convinced that he's a liar. And so then we move on, and we'll just, I'm going to try and go quickly here, and um, we move on to what Jesus says to the scribes in verse 22 when they say, no, 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 he is not the Lord. He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. 
He called them to him and he said to them, he basically said, says, that's ridiculous. The absurdity of what you're saying proves that you're prejudiced against me. I mean, he, he's incredibly redundant here. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. And Jesus is saying this. He's saying, listen, Satan would not attack his own flanks in war. It would make no sense for a general to turn the flanks of his army against one another to fight each other. That, that's ridiculous. That's absurd. And what Jesus is saying, he's saying, by your absurdity, you're revealing a prejudice that you have against me. And verses 31 through 35 are very telling for us. And I apologize that, that um, this is not, this is, uh, it might be hard to follow. But, but what the Pharisees don't want to do is what is captured in verses 31 to 35. They have no desire to sit at Jesus' feet, which is a place of submission. And they have no desire to do whatever he tells them to do. And so what is at the heart of the eternal sin that's captured in verse 28, where Jesus says, 28 and 29, the heart of the eternal sin is to say this, I have been enlightened in my mind as to who Jesus says he is, and I know that he's right, but because I do not want him in control of my life telling me what to do, I am going to say that he's a liar. Does that make sense? In other words, the eternal sin, this one, I remember being at a soccer um, uh, tournament with my coach who was a believer and another guy who was a believer, and me and this other guy, Brad Bowers, we were so worried that we had committed the unpardonable sin. I mean, we were so concerned about it, and we were asking him over and over, how do we know if we have not done this? Because the Bible says there's something you can't be forgiven of. And he was really wise. He said, I'm not sure what all that means, but I know this, that your concern over the matter proves that you haven't committed it. That, that whoever commits this sin has so hardened their own heart and so prejudiced themselves against the gospel and the forgiveness they can have in Jesus, and they're so radically opposed to Jesus being in charge of their life that they decide to say, although I know that it's true, I'm going to go with the opposite. Here's how I know the scribes and Pharisees know that what Jesus is saying is true and they're not just ignorant. That in Luke chapter 23 and, uh, 22 and 23, where we're reading in City Bible Reading, um, I'm so sorry. Um, Jesus, um, I don't know where to put this. Um, what was I saying? Oh, right, right, good. It says in Luke chapter 22 twice that the people who are holding Jesus were blaspheming against him. And then it says in Luke 23, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. The Apostle Paul is a perfect example of someone who can blaspheme against Jesus and say he's not the Christ and really mean it inside. So the unpardonable, unforgivable sin, the sin to which you cannot return from, is the sin of knowing that he's Savior and Lord and saying no thanks because I want to have control of my life. And we have no idea. We should enter into this with incredible humility. We have no idea when someone else has committed the unpardonable sin. We have no idea when the unforgivable sin has been committed. All we know is this, is that these scribes were close enough to Jesus, uh, to this, that Jesus says, come here, I must tell you something. You're really close to a very dangerous eternal place. So 
that's what I would like to say at this point. Maybe next week I'll try and say more or maybe correct what I just said. But what I think for us, what I think we should look at and think about is this, that Mark has sandwiched these two stories together for a reason. And he is saying, by sandwiching these two together, that thinking that Jesus is crazy and calling him a liar are not that far from one another. I don't mean to say and scare us into thinking that we have all committed the unpardonable sin, but what he is saying is that they are not that randomly opposed to one another. And this is what I was thinking about when I, when I wanted to draw this, this idea out. When Jesus says this stuff at the bottom, who are my mother and brothers? <laughs> Look at these people sitting around me. They're my spiritual mothers and brothers. I thought this alludes to one of the most offensive things Jesus could possibly say. In order to be in my kingdom, you've got to hate your family. I mean, he says that. He's talking, of course, about degrees. He's talking, of course, about priorities. He's saying, your love for me has to be so exclusive and so primary that it's as if you hate your own family. And that's what Jesus is saying here. And when he says these hard things like that, or when he says, you know what, every day I want you to pick up your cross and follow me. Or when he says, you know what, I want, to give, I want you to give away everything you have to the poor, and I want you to come be with me. Or when he says, whatever those things are that we like to say, oh, that just meant for that person. Sure, maybe that's true. But what we've done is we've said, there are certain things you may not tell me to do. There are certain things, there are certain places you may not tell me to go. And then when I think you're telling me to do something like that, I'm not going to call you a liar because the fact is I know that, that you're right. But I'm just going to call you a little crazy. Does that make sense? And when you read through the Bible and there are these radical things that it calls us to as believers, do we not sometimes just say, there, there's, that's got to be hyperbole. That's got to be exaggeration. That can't possibly be what he means. He can't possibly want me to do that. And this is, what I, this is what I want to say to you, and this is what I'm saying to my own heart, is that if Jesus does everything necessary to save us as our Savior, not only that, then he can ask anything from us in return. That he's presented in the Scriptures as both Savior and Lord. He's both the Redeemer and the Master. He's one and the same, and the two will never be divorced from one another. And this is why I think Mark sandwiches these two texts together is because when we read the part about the sin that can't be forgiven, we freak out. I do. I often wonder if I've done that. I've done a lot of really nasty things in my life. And I think Mark's sandwiching them together to say, listen, the only place that you're going to find life is sitting at the feet of Jesus, submitting your will to his and knowing that whatever he calls you to do is going to be better than what you would have thought of on your own. How could you possibly, how could we possibly get to the point where I would say, you know what, Jesus, if you told me to give everything away and follow you, that that would be better than me keeping everything. How can I get my heart to the point where I say, okay, Jesus, I don't understand. Trisha is the most lovely thing I've ever been with in my entire life. But if you really want me to at times feel hatred for her in comparison to what I feel for you, that must be better than what I feel for her on my own. I mean, how can I get my heart and soul and mind to the place where I say, sitting at Jesus' feet in submission to him and in a willingness to do whatever he says, verse 35, that is where I will find life. How can I possibly get there? I think the answer is in verse 27. 
No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. When we say no thanks to the authority of God, we don't go live in autonomy. We go live in slavery under Satan. And so the first thing that Jesus is telling us in this text is saying no to me is not saying yes to independence, saying yes to slavery to one who wants to kill you. And he is stronger than you. And you cannot get free from his grip on your own. But this is where we can get to the point. And right now I'm at the binding of the strong man. This is where we can get to the point where we sit down and say, you know what, whatever you tell me to do is going to be better than what I could have thought of anyway because you started this relationship in such amazing, gracious, good, and kind ways. That if the way you pursue me and begin this relationship is by the gospel, where I'm living in rebellion, where I'm living in sin, where I'm living out here in incredible negligence and belligerence, if I'm over here saying no thank you to you and you pursue me with your own life and death and resurrection in order to capture me and bring me home sheerly by amazing grace and goodness and you take me out of the strong man's house, you take me out of the kingdom of Satan who has me, he has me captured and he, 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 he desires to kill me and he has me deceived and he just has me out there living like an orphan who has no family and if what you want to do is you want to come and get me and say, you know what, I want to forgive you and I want to live my life for you and I I want to make you righteous in the Father's sight, and I want him to love you the way he loves me, and I want you to be my younger brother and my younger sister, and I want you to come and be family with me. Oh, I can do whatever you tell me to do then. Because I was over here dying, and you came and rescued me. And if your first movement towards me was so sacrificial and loving and gracious and kind, and if it was so overwhelming and beautiful and amazing and life-giving and redemptive for me, then I can believe you when you say to go do something else that sounds crazy to me because you've been so good. And I can believe that I don't go there in order to get you to love me, or I don't go there in order for you to keep loving me, or I don't go there to pay you back. I don't go there in your debt. I go there because there is life wherever you're telling me to go. Because this relationship is about life, and it started that way, it will continue that way, and it will end that way. I put in here the binding of the strong man, capital T. And the reason I put that in here is because Isaiah 49, if you have a chance, go read it this afternoon, 24 to 26. Isaiah 49 is a prophecy. I'll I'll read it for you right now. Tell me if this doesn't sound exactly like what's going on in our passage. Isaiah 49, 24, can the prey or the captive be taken from the mighty one or can the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says, listen to this, thus says the Lord, Even the captives of the mighty one shall be taken. The prey of the tyrant will be rescued. For I, Yahweh, I, the Lord, I, Jesus, will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save you. I will make your oppressor eat his own flesh. I will make him drink his own blood and get drunk on it. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior. I am your Redeemer. I am the strong man of Jacob. You get this? This is what Jesus is saying. He's not just saying, I'm the Son of Man. He's not just saying, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. He's not just saying, you know what? I forgive all sins. He's also saying, I'm the strong man of Isaiah 49. That the prophecy of the Old Testament is that God himself will come in incredible strength and he will bind up Satan who has us in his dominion and in slavery and in bondage to him and he will bind him up and he will take us home. But here's the problem. 
you and I don't just have an enslavement issue to Satan. We also have a rebellious issue that must be punished. And so when I wrote The Binding of the Strong Man, this is what I meant by that. That if we keep going in Mark, and we will, we'll eventually get to Mark chapter 15, verse 1, and all of the Gospels say this about Jesus, that he was bound and carried away. That this one with all strength, the mighty one of Isaiah 49, the one with all strength and power is going to let himself be bound and taken captive, and he's going to go where he does not want to go because his most amazing exhibition of strength is his willingness to be weak for you and me. That what will melt my heart to sit at his feet as a family member forgiven by him, what will melt my heart to sit there and say, I believe you, take me wherever you want to go, this will melt my heart, is that the strong man was not just strong enough to bind Satan, he was supernaturally more powerful than Satan, the strong man is also strong enough to be bound himself in my place. We were, we were uh, roller skating this week. And, um, man, I've got great memories of roller skating. I'm from South Carolina, so I apologize for that. Uh, I have got really great memories of roller skating. We took our kids this week for a Princeton Elementary fundraiser. And they didn't have this when I was growing up, but they have skates now where they can lock the wheels on them so the kids can get out there and uh, they can get out there and have, have fun and uh, not have their feet fly out from under them the way I learned, breaking their wrists over and over. And their parents probably should have taken them to the hospital, and they didn't. And... Um, <laughs> And we were going to go around one more time because we had to get home. Trisha and I had a meeting. The kids needed to go to bed. And Braden didn't get the message that I, and of course, Trisha, I'm pregnant. I don't think I should probably skate. Oh, good. Perfect. So I'm already 6'4". Why don't I become 6'7 and go out there and risk my head um, on this concrete floor? Because my wheels, mind you, were not locked. I asked them, do you have size 14 that locks? No. So I'm out there, and the kids are just dragging me all over the place, and they're falling down, and I'm trying to fall to where I don't hit them. It's horrible. Um, but So we decided to go around one more time, and uh, Braden didn't get the message, and we're a quarter of the way around. And I finally hear Trisha yelling my name, and I look back, and there's Braden. I mean, just weeping. He's just got tears flowing down his face, but he's coming across the skating rink with all these fourth and fifth graders flying around him. And Gigi, I'm saying, Gigi, hold on, hold on. Gigi, my two-year-old, and Braden's my four-year-old. Hold on, baby, hold on, let's wait for Braden. She's like pulling, tugging, no, no. And she's like, I want to win, because we, we're racing. It's like, I want to win, let's go. You mean, you know, survival the fittest, the heck with him. Come on, let's go. And, um, and Riley um, was, I could tell, perplexed. She wasn't quite sure what to do, because she was desperate to win as well, but she also could see the situation that her brother was in. And then Maddie, my, uh, my seven-year-old, lets go of Riley's hand and starts to go against the current to go back and get Braden and bring him to us. Maddie's my strongest child because she's not just strong enough to go win, she's strong enough to go back and pick up the loser. That's what it means when I say the binding of the strong man is that his greatest act of strength is his willingness to be bound so he doesn't just conquer Satan and have more power than him, but he conquers him in such a way that you and I can go be with him and the Father as family. Do you get that in 31 through 35? Every verse, it says mother, brothers, 32. Mother, brothers, 33. Mother, brothers, 34. Mother, brothers, 35. Mother, sister, brother. What's going on there? He's saying, you're family. 
your family. I'm going to take you from slavery and rebellion to incredible love and being a family. And that's going to melt your heart so that you say, I can trust him and do whatever he tells me to do. And I don't have to call him a lunatic and I don't have to say he's a liar. I can believe him because he's been so good to me. There's just something incredible. I, I mean, I hate to bring up all the profound, um, let's see, what's the right word? I hate to bring up all the redundant um, uh, illustrations. I mean, there, the, the, there's no better story structure in the history of the world than the story structure of the hero dying for the slave. I mean, there's just nothing better. There, you can't come up with a better meta-narrative. You can't come up with a deeper narrative of a story that's anything better than the strong one becoming weak so that the weak can become strong. I mean, it, Think about Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck. I mean, what a horrible movie Armageddon was. I I was crying at the end of that movie. It's old enough now. I can ruin it for you. Bruce Willis decides to die on some planet, I think. Maybe the moon. And he sends Ben Affleck back. And I'm just bawling like a baby. I mean, that's profound. I mean, Harry Potter, the first book. Are you kidding me? When Harry finds out why he can't be killed, it's because his mom was killed in this place. I mean, that'll move your soul. That will make you melt and say, you're not a liar, you're not a lunatic, you're the Lord who is my Savior. Eagle eye. I mean, I'm not going to ruin that one for you. <laughs> that right there will just turn your, your, your cold heart to butter in the hands of the good one. That the one who was so alive, he was willing to die for you. That the one who was so strong, he was willing to be weak for you. That the one who was so rich was willing to die naked. That the one with all wisdom and understanding was willing to die with a question on his lips that was unanswered. That will melt our hearts. He's not just the strong man who can bind Satan and bring us home. He's the strong enough man to die for us so that when we come home, we're not slaves, but we're family. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I trust that you will be at work in this mess of a sermon, and I trust that your word will not return void, and I trust that your Holy Spirit is strong and powerful, and I trust that in my foolishness you are brilliant, and I trust that in my weakness you are strong, I trust in my poverty you are rich, I trust in my sin you're perfect and beautiful. I pray, I beg you to please take this truth and put it deep into our hearts, and Lord, I'm sure I skated in and around heresy at some point today. I pray that you'd cause it to fall away. I hope that I have said something that's redemptive and true and biblical. And I ask that you would grab whatever that is and put it deep into our hearts and give us a profound and wonderful love for you, a trust in you, and a heart's desire to go do whatever you tell us to do. Lord Jesus, please be powerful. In your name we pray, amen.